This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. Living on bread and water, the third step towards changing the world. Uh, Somewhat of a misleading title on purpose. Uh, In other words, just like last week, it was Carmelized Saints. And you can't really, how do you take that step? And I want to build this uh, in a very unique way today. Uh, The terms bread and water are very significant in the scriptures. And it's interesting because uh, if we as Americans have a diet of bread and water, uh, we would be considered impoverished. Uh, Who would ever deliberately choose to have a diet Uh, of bread and water. And yet, what I'm going to show you today is that basically that is the essence of what brings life to us as Christians. Now, I don't want you to get lost in the fact that it's just bread, natural bread and natural water. We're talking about something supernatural. This is the third step towards changing the world. So obviously that begs the question, if you haven't been here, uh, I think we're missing a couple. And I'm going to review those quickly for us. Uh, Last week I brought up a scripture for us in Isaiah 59. So shall they fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. When the enemy comes in like a flood, the spirit of the Lord will lift up a standard against him. There's a pattern in scripture. In Isaiah 59 we have an absolute meltdown of the moral condition of the land. And so what we see in and through Isaiah 59 is a need It's a need for someone to rise up, and that is the very context for God looking for an intercessor. And because he can't find one, he himself becomes that intercessor. It's fulfilled in the person of Jesus Christ. And so this statement can describe the coming of the Messiah. The enemy has come into this world like a flood, but yet a standard has been raised up against him. And a resistance army has been raised up, a resistance army of one known as Jesus Christ, and he crushed that devil's head that came in like a flood. And yet, this is also a pattern. This is a principle of the kingdom. Whenever the enemy moves to try and take down that land, that territory of God's kingdom, God will raise up a standard against him. And that is done in and through the body of Christ, just as it was done through the body of Christ 2,000 years ago, hanging on that cross. It is still done through the body of Christ. And that is us. And that is how that standard is raised up. And that is how the resistance takes place. We are, in fact, the resistance army in this generation. If we stand by and do nothing, the enemy's flood will continue to wash over this world and get deeper and deeper and deeper. However, if the church of Jesus Christ deliberately chooses to believe the word of God, to stand in the authority that we have been granted in and through his shed blood, we then push back the tide of darkness. Three steps to changing the world. Step one, going after revival. Step two, becoming caramelized saints. Step three, living on bread and water. I know that doesn't really help, does it? So a little more clarity may be necessary here. Step one, going after revival. This concept, I likened it to the metaphor that God himself gives in scripture. In the uh, book of James specifically, he describes this idea of going after the things of God, of waiting for the coming of the Lord, for waiting for the strength of God to be manifest in this world. That he likens it to a farmer, which seems strange at first. A farmer seems so docile compared to a soldier of the cross. And yet what a farmer is doing is he's trusting in the framework of how God created things. A farmer recognizes that if he does his part, God will do his part. And so there is something that we are responsible to do in order that God will unlock and do his role. Going after revival. A revival isn't supposed to be a mysterious move of the Holy Spirit. Many people today have this notion that God moves when he wants to. And I'm not going to say that God doesn't move when he wants to. I'm saying in regards to reviving of a soul, technically, 
God has already moved. The fact that you desire to awaken, to be revived, is the sign that God is wanting to revive you. If you have no desire or no inkling towards reviving, well, then uh, I can't speak for you. However, when you have a desire, I need life. I cannot remain as I am. I refuse to accept this defeat. I refuse to accept this mediocrity. I stare into scripture and I see a muscle. I see a power and I do not see it here. So therefore, what are you going to do about it? You're going to just bemoan the fact and just cluck your tongue at yourself and just wallow in the conviction but not respond to it? The fact that you desire something more is the surest sign that God wants to give it to you. You see, revival starts in and through a working, a preparation of the spirit of grace. However, then it is the response to it. We begin to do. A farmer can stare at his land all day long and say, how come I don't have any crops? And God says, do you really want to know the answer to that? You see, a farmer only gets his crops by doing what a farmer ought to do. He needs to till that soil. He needs to plant the seed. He needs to water that seed. There's a very specific process that a farmer must go through. And if he does, God will bring the increase. God will bring the harvest. So if you're tired of staring at land that isn't producing crop, what are you going to do about it? Are you willing to do what a farmer needs to do? Are you willing to rise up and pursue your God? Because he is a rewarder of those that diligently seek him. If you diligently, like a farmer, seek him, plant that seed after tilling that soil, watering it, weeding it, and then waiting, doing what a farmer ought to do, I guarantee you, according to the laws of the kingdom of heaven, you will in fact find precisely what you're going after. So a revival isn't supposed to be a mysterious move of the Holy Spirit. It's supposed to be the obvious response of a God who has promised and cannot lie. The illustration of the farmer, till check, plant, check, water, check, weed, check, wait, check, receive, check. It's coming, guys. It's called the coming of the Lord. God always will come. So he has promised that he will come. He will come. Now, we, last week we defined the difference between a big C, capital C coming, and a small C coming. When we think of the coming of the Lord, we're all thinking of him coming in the clouds. Uh, we're thinking of him returning, setting his feet upon the Mount of Olives and dividing asunder, and then he takes his seat on the throne, and every knee bows and every tongue confesses that he is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Big C, I'm very excited about it. However, God comes in a small C way in every instance in our life. And so we need to recognize that the same principle that we believe he's coming someday... We also need to know that he's coming in these circumstances. He's coming in this situation. He's coming. He will indeed come. Small C, big C, both true. Be patient, therefore, brothers, until the coming of the Lord. See how the farmer waits for the precious fruit of the earth, being patient about it until it receives the early and late rains. You also be patient. Establish your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is at hand. And so that word for patience, to set yourself in a position and not move. To have a suffering that is long, to have a long patience is what that word is. It's a long patience. It's actually the definition. You know, most of us have a very short patience. It's like, I waited. Where's God? As opposed to a long patience, which is what you are being commissioned to have here. You also have a long patience. Endure the difficulty, even when the natural realm doesn't seem to respond, you hold your ground. You stay tuned to God. You do not let go. And that establish your hearts is one of fixing your gaze solely upon one thing and not being diverted, not being wooed by the metallic glint in the bush off to the side, by the fireworks display over here. What has God commissioned you to do? Stay focused. Why? For the coming of the Lord is at hand. Hey guys, you wait patiently. You establish your hearts. God will come. The clear pattern of reviving the land. So this is back in the book of Chronicles. And it's been quoted many times. Okay, So if this is the 4,000th time you've heard this scripture, it's okay. 
It doesn't mean the scripture goes bad. John 3.16 did not go sour uh, just because it's been quoted so many times. Still, wonderful truth. Okay, so always remember that. Never tune out when you recognize the scripture. This is in the context of Solomon building the temple and God is giving him a pattern that if this land diverts its attention away from Jehovah and goes after false gods, if that ever happens, you return to this house and you do this. And if you do this exact thing, just as a farmer, if you do this farmer, you will get a crop. If you, my people, have diverted your attention away from Jehovah and have gone after false gods, if you have put anything else in my position in this land, you will experience pestilence. You will experience disease. You will experience war. Why? Because I cannot give my protection and my blessing to a nation that turns from me. But... If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. The context of this is a pattern of response. They are to return to the temple. Who is the temple today? Jesus. And in that position of in Jesus Christ, you humble yourself. You return to first things, to the truth of truths. The Messiah who has come, there's only one house that matters now, and that is the house that was raised up on the third day. And when we humble ourselves and we return to that house and we say, Lord Jesus, I have sinned against you, and we turn from our wicked ways, our evil ways, and we repent of them, we will see a change in our life. This is how revival comes. How do we find a revival right here? Let's heed the simple laws of farming. We know what we need to do. We started two weeks ago with what we called breaking up the fallow ground, allowing the Spirit of God to come in and deal with the compacted sin, the many layers of justification and rationalization that we've brought. We know what we ought to do, but guess what? We didn't do it. So we have layers of disobedience, small things even sometimes, that God wants to till up the soil and break it open so that he can get down to that last point of obedience. And he could say... Let's go back to this, right here, where you disobeyed, right here, and I want you to do what you were supposed to do. There could be someone you need to forgive. There could be a note you need to write. There could be something you didn't do and you should have done. I don't know what it is, and I'm not going to try and speak to that. All I'm saying is that we come before God and say, God, bring your till, bring your plow, and turn up this soil. I do not want compacted justifications in my life. I want to be ready to receive your seed, to be ready to receive your life in me. So breaking up the fallow ground. And the way we do this, I don't want to prescribe it a certain way. We walked through the old school way back before the old-timey revivals, and it was pretty fun to do it. However, there's a lot of things that God wants to put his finger on. I don't want you to try and put your finger on your sin. I want you to allow God to do it. Your job is to set yourself before him. A lot of times we make the mistake of coming before God and then seeking ourselves for sin. And what that does is that turns us inward and away from the true source of health, which is Jesus Christ. You keep your gaze on him, guess what? I don't ever struggle in knowing when I'm doing something wrong. When I'm focusing on Jesus Christ, guess what? I'm very sensitive to what the Holy Spirit is saying. I don't need to try and find it. He finds it. And he's very faithful, especially when I respond to it, to keep finding it. And so if we are willing to humble ourselves, to repent of trying to push him off and that conviction off, and we set our gaze towards Jesus Christ and pursue him, we will find what God is wanting us to see. Sow to yourselves in righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground, for it is time to seek the Lord till he come and rain righteousness upon you. So step two was becoming caramelized saints. And just for the clarification, for those that missed it last week, it's a play on words. It's not caramel, it's Carmel. Carmel is a place, a location in Israel called Mount Carmel. And so we need to become caramelized saints. Carmel actually is the place of abundant fruit bearing, the place of reviving. And the nation of Israel needed reviving in the days of Elijah. And where did Elijah call them to? To Carmel. And so I think we need to come there too. I think we need to see that fresh outpouring of grace, the fire of God increase in our midst too. 
So last week we gave the marching orders of no diversions. You guys remember me describing diversions? In studying revivals throughout history, the number one thing that has hindered the formation of revival, full-on revival, is the fact that the body of Christ gets awakened and stirred, but then immediately gets distracted. And so as a result, for us to move forward, we need to recognize this. This is why this was called the second step to stay focused and tuned. You need to recognize the devil's gonna make a lot of noise around you. Your job is to stay fixed upon one singular thing, your objective, Jesus Christ, allowing him to have you holy and completely. For me, and this is where this came up even that week, uh, it was a few days before last week's sermon, that God had been working on me saying, okay, so Eric, you had a great movement. You saw something clear uh, and you preached it on Sunday. So how are you doing with that right now? And I recognized that I'd gotten distracted from it. How can you preach such a strong sermon as going after revival and then be distracted? Because I had so many little noises in my life, and as long as I kept listening to them, I found that I dulled towards the primary focus. Now, I hate to bring it up again, but it's possible that after two weeks of preaching on revival, some of you have still been distracted, which is why it never hurts to bring this up again. However, for the last, oh, I don't know what it's been now, but it's been a week and a half or so, I have removed all diversions from my life. And when you remove a diversion, it's really funny. At first, and what I mean by diversion, because they could be anything. There's a lot of big diversions. And then Eric Ludy suffers from small diversions, which is why I can so easily rationalize them. And they usually have something to do with my life. And so as a result, I can easily say, well, I need that because it helps me be effective here. Like this little piece of news from Fox News could be really helpful for me to understand what in the world is going on. See, some of you are like, amen, preach it, brother. And yet that little bit from Fox News distracts me more than just the time it takes for me to read. Because sometimes I, I might just take a couple minutes, see what's going on, read the headlines, and then what do I do the rest of the day? Stew about it. I'm upset about it. It really bothers me. And then I even try and spiritualize that. It's like, thank you, Lord, for showing that to me so I can have a righteous indignation. So what I've noticed in my own life is there are little things that take me off my game. So what I've done is I've removed every single one of them. And when you do, you go through a little blahness for the first day. It's really weird where you're just like craving it. It's like the extra heightened desire for that. I've never wanted news so much as when I can't have it. And so here's what I found. After about 10 days or 11 days, whatever it's been, I have such a sharp focus now because of removing these small things. It's been a gift to my life. And as a result, I feel sorry for you guys that still have your diversions because I'm now red hot focused on revival. (laughs) So as a result, it's like 10 weeks later, you guys are like, okay, I'm finally ready to give up my diversions because Eric just will not relent. No diversions. So here's a little... uh, preaching inside of my soul. Come on, Ludy, don't waste one single moment on that. Stay focused. You know why you're here, don't you? That is a distraction right here. Keep looking at me. Say no to everything that is mine for your heart, your mind, your focus, and your time. Everything that steers your inner man toward a different end. You are here on earth for one singular purpose. Don't forget that. Print it on your eyeballs. Emblaze it on the doorposts of your thought life. Burn it into every, in the very center of your inner life. Bend those knees and keep the prayer pressure on until the rain comes. The illustration we gave last week was Elijah. Elijah knows that it hasn't rained in Israel for three and a half years. Rain is desperately needed. The soil is drought condition. It is death in that land. Well, we're struggling with a need for water here too. There's some of you that are in a drought. And so what do we need? We need rain. Elijah hears it. He knows what God wants to bring back to Israel. It's been three and a half years, but he hears it. He says, I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. That's what I want to tell you guys. I hear the sound of an abundance of rain. So what does he do next? He bends his knees and sticks his head between them onto the ground and begins to cry out for that rain. You see, that's what we do. It's the movement of prayer. But then he remains in that position until the rain comes. He rises up and he sends his servant out to look for a cloud in the sky. There hadn't been a cloud in the sky for three and a half years. Do you see anything, servant? There's nothing. So what does he do? Give up? Look at the gleaming metallic substance in the bush and go, huh, what's that? 
You see, he's on Carmel. It's the place of reviving. Though it is dead right now, there hasn't been any water on it for who knows how long. And yet, he bends his knees again, sticks his hand, head between his knees onto the ground and prays for the return of rain. Sends his servant out. Servant comes back. There's nothing, sir. Seven times, he bends afresh and cries out for that return of rain. You see, he's not going to relent until the rain comes. That's what it means to be a caramelized saint. You hear the sound, you know what God wants to do, and now you don't let go until he does it. So how long are we willing to hold on? Until he revives us the way God intends us to function as the church of Jesus Christ. I say, let's hold on to him until... Therefore, to him who knows to do good and does not do it, to him it is sin. When you know to stay focused on something and keep getting distracted, it becomes a sin to you. You see, when God is giving you the gracious truth of saying, this is what matters, now you are accountable to it. You know what matters in this life. You know what is most important, so stay tuned to it. Give yourself to it. When you're distracted by something, ask God, is that something I should remove? There's a lot of things. I still have been brushing my teeth over these last 11 days. That would be a diversion for you otherwise if I didn't. In other words, there's still things that I am doing, but there's some things that I know very clearly have been a diversion for me. Only God can define that for you. My diversions may not be your diversions. Some of you are like, I'm willing to give up Fox News. You didn't look at it anyways. That doesn't make any difference to you. But there are certain things for each of us that can grab us. You need to know what those are, and you need to come before God and say, God, I'm willing. I just said, I want you to consider taking seven days without those things. That's what I asked last week. Okay, now I am not putting a time frame on my diversions. I just want you to test it. I want you to press in. I want you to see the luxury, spiritual luxury that comes when you can stay focused on one singular thing. Carmel. So here's our definition for it the place of unrelenting prayer pressure, the place of one singular objective, the place of long patience, long suffering until the coming of the Lord. Caramelized, this was our invented word last week. It's different than caramelized. Fixing our gaze on getting what Jesus wants in our lives, our marriages, our families, his church, and in this dying world. And not releasing our hold on our master until we see it happen. So you can look around you at this culture today, and you could say, is this what God desires for this nation? And I'm pretty confident I know the answer to that. I'll let you, you know, discern that yourself. But I'm burdened, and I have two choices while I live as an American citizen. One is to throw up my hands and say, hey, the devil take it all. Or the other is to say, not on my watch. For whatever reason, I'm here right now in this country. Why? Because maybe God wants to care through someone. And so maybe I am a vehicle of care, of compassion, of hope, of faith. Maybe we are a church that is meant to be a vehicle of hope, a vehicle of faith. Maybe. What if God wants to do something in this nation, in and through a band of believers who simply will not take no for an answer? We know that the onslaught of immorality is growing increasing with every passing day. The voice of Christianity in this culture is almost completely squelched now. To the point that anyone that even rose up to say we should pray for these victims, these churchgoers that were shot... They're being demonized now. Why would we even pray? Mockery towards even the notion of Christian virtue. What do we do in such a time? If you try and fight with man's tools, you will lose. You fight with God's tools. We know what to do, church. We know precisely what to do. The question is, how much do we desire it? Because it's only when we finally get serious and most of us are waiting until we're thrown into a concentration camp before we respond. But I'm telling you, there are Christians suffering all over the world right now and most of us don't care. It's high time we get God's affection, his heart, 
his feelings. And if you're missing it, we need revival. I think, without a shadow of a doubt, we need it right in this room. Step three, so this is today, living on bread and water. I'm going to explain that as we progress. Uh, nixing the wet fish plan. So we were driving in. I want to say it was, oh, it was to school this last week. That's what it was. And we were praying. Our, our whole family has been praying for revival every day. And so I was praying something or saying something. I don't remember what it, what it was. It used the word purposeful in it. And uh, so Dub responded by asking what the word purposeful meant. And that's what led to uh, the wet fish plan. Okay, so, and I'll, I'll explain this as we progress, but nixing the wet fish plan. That's another way that we could say uh, the third step for changing the world. I don't know if that helps you very much either. But uh, my conversation with Dub, his question, Daddy, what does it mean to be purposeful? So I don't remember what I was saying, but we were talking, it was in the context of revival, of purposeful living. Like, we wake up, we do things on purpose. Okay, it was that kind of a concept, but I, I, I use bigger words than I sometimes should when I'm talking with my kids. I really fit well with collegiates and up because my vocabulary loves to aim in that direction. But then I have all these little kids that look at me and go, what does that mean? I'm like, hey, you've been around daddy all these years, you don't know what that means? So purposeful is just a great word. I mean, you could break it down very quickly and say full of purpose, okay? That, that would be a really easy way of doing it, but we're not gonna do it that way. Daddy, what does it mean to be purposeful? So, uh, Dub, when I answer that, I say, well, okay, it's like a football team, and they have the, the football, and they want to get it into that end zone, okay? So they look at that end zone, they all look at each other and go, we, our job is to get this football into that end zone. Of course, you have to follow the rules in doing it too, right? So, and I said, but there is an enemy that wants to hinder them from getting into that end zone. So you need to recognize, as a football team, you need to have a purpose, and you need to be in agreement with that purpose. This ball, that end zone. But we need to recognize that there is an enemy that wants to hinder us in our purpose. So the key is, and I think we were talking about diversions, we can't let that enemy tell us and get us off course to have a different purpose. Oh, get the ball out of bounds. That's not our purpose. Run the ball into their end zone. That's not our purpose. Our purpose is to stick it down their throat. We're taking this football and getting it into that end zone, and we don't care what you have to say in the meantime. And they can make all sorts of taunts on the other side of the line. You're going down. You're going down. And we ignore it. We're not going to be swayed by anything on the other line. We're going to get this ball into that end zone. So this is when, Hud, uh, this is when uh, Dub said, oh, well, that means we don't want to have a wet fish plan. And we're all sort of in the car going, yeah, yeah, well. And he told me, this is the story behind it. I guess uh, Adrian, Miss Adrian, his teacher, had, uh, had a handshake with him that week and said, no, don't shake it as if your hand is a wet fish. And so she told him, then throughout the day, they were using the term wet fish as like the bad, weak version of something. So that, this is his rendition of it. We need, if we're going to be purposeful, we can't have a wet fish plan. That's a great way of saying it. Any of you that are like of the manly persuasion, you hate the wet fish handshake, right? Then you have to like this. We do not want to have a wet fish sort of living as Christians. Do we know why we're here? When we wake up in the morning, do we have a firm handshake? Do we know what we're after? Do we know we're taking this pigskin and getting it into that end zone? I don't know that we do. That's the whole point. Living on bread and water is a very creative way of saying you need to know what you're about. Now, I haven't explained to you what living on bread and water is. However, it means living on purpose. Now, that'll make sense as we go forward, but it's living on purpose. Oh, so you mean you don't want to just have a wet fish plan, Deborah Deuster, age nine. Purposeful, knowing precisely why you are doing what you are doing. When you wake up in the morning, do you know precisely why you are doing why you, what you are doing? You see, when you're a football player, it makes a lot more sense, doesn't it? It's like, well, of course a football player would know what they're doing. Why wouldn't it be just as obvious for us as Christians? Do we not have the opportunity to know the playbook, to know precisely what wins the game? Have we not read it? Do we not know it? Have we not been trained in it? 
Is it possible that our training as Christians has not given us the real purpose of why we're here and what we're supposed to be doing when we get on the field? We wake up in the morning. I mean, technically, we play 24-7 as Christians. I mean, this is one big game of football. And we are constantly battling an enemy. That defense wants to keep us out of the glory of God. He does not want the kingdom of heaven to be revealed in this earth. And our entire agenda is we are sticking this pigskin, our life, into that end zone. We are showing the glory of God in and through this estate. Right here. This is revealing God. And I know the enemy will taunt. He'll make all his noises. He has that little black paint underneath his eyes and he growls. He does his thing. However, he cannot stop the freight train of the kingdom of heaven. We rip doors off of hinges and carry them away. We do not get defined and denied by the kingdom of darkness. When we set our course to take down that kingdom of darkness, the saints of God win. That is the facts. If you fear that defense and they have all their growls and all their noises and then you run the opposite way and you score a touchdown for them, that's not what we're here for. The football player, I want to get this football into that end zone. The farmer, I want to get this seed to grow into that full-grown plant. You see, a farmer knows what he's after. I'm going to plant corn this year. Well, he doesn't plant watermelon then. He plants corn. And what's he after the whole time? He's after corn. Everything is clear for a farmer. They don't accidentally get a crop. Everything is on purpose. What are we after? What are we planting this year? That farmer down the road knows he's planting corn. Do we know? Do we know what we're planting? Do we know what we're going to harvest? The Christian, I want this body to show the life of Jesus. Very simple. There's other more fantastical ways I could say it. However, you see the life of God and you say, I want this body to show that life. You see, we want to get this body into that glory, into that end zone. We know what we're after. It's a prize. It's a reward. It is the fullness of why we were created to reveal the image of God in and through this shell. This shell in and of itself has no power to reveal God. But we have been given precisely what we need to show forth that glory. So how do we do that? But we all with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. The answer is right there. Our purpose, how do we change from glory to glory image, uh, or in this image, how do we do it? It's by one known as the Spirit of the Lord. So our job is to come before God and say, break up this fallow ground. Our job is to put our knees on the ground in Carmel, plant our face in that soil, and not relent in our praying until we see it come. Our job is to say, I know what is needed to get this body there. And it's that I need to give up this estate to one who can rule it well. Because I am weaker than that defense. And that defense will take me down and I will lose that football. But if I allow this body to be indwelled by the Most High God, the enemy cannot keep me out of that end zone. First, we do the farmer thing. So this is going after revival. This is the first step. We till, we plant, we weed, we water, and we wait. Second, we do the Elijah thing. This was becoming Carmelized saints. We bend our knees, plant our face on the ground, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray, and we pray until the rain comes. And third, this is today's message, we do the slave thing. We say, yes, Lord. We give access to the Holy Spirit to come into our bodies and master us. We yield the control position and we become his bond slave. Our time is no longer our own. Our gifts and abilities are no longer our own. Our money is no longer our own. Our lives are no longer our own. So what's going to keep us from having revival? Do you, have you seen a few uh, obstructions so far? A few things that might stand in the way. It's all hot us, by the way. It's not God. God's saying, are you ready? I'm ready to revive you. I'm ready to give you my life. He says, but you need to repent. 
You need to turn from your evil ways. You need to give that up. You need to stay focused. You need to establish your heart and not allow the glint and the shimmer of this world to hinder you from coming after me. Oh, and by the way, I need that body. What do you mean by that? Yeah, um, I need you to move into a butler position. I'm coming in and mastering that estate. Can I have the keys? This is what has to be present if you want to have what you're after. You want to get into that end zone? There's only one way. He gets you there. He needs what he purchased on the cross. You do know what it says in Scripture, don't you? That he bought these bodies with his blood. They belong to him now. And that's why he says, yield this body. It's your reasonable act of service to be a living sacrifice. This is the body of Christ now. It's no longer the body of death. It has been bought and paid for by his shed blood. Why did he do that? To make you miserable? No, to give you life. To get you into the end zone. You see, God has a design for your life to succeed. But you have to give up the controls. And as long as you're still holding the keys, as long as you're still defining how you use your time, as long as you're still the one defining how you use your resources, as long as you're the one that's still defining how you use your talents and abilities, it's not the Christian life. It's still you. We have a new purpose. To follow the Holy Spirit perfectly. Now that is such a grand statement. You know, the Holy Spirit will lead us if we will follow. He's leading. However, most of us have never gotten on that bandwagon and said, I'm going where the Holy Spirit is going. And that's because we're still holding on to our rights, our time, our resources, our dreams, our ambitions. However, to heed and to follow the Holy Spirit perfectly is what we're after. Just like a football team, to execute the plays perfectly gets you into the end zone. Here's the play. You ready to run it? But like I'm running across the middle, the guy can take me out. I know. Are you willing to run the play as it's been called? Because this is how we're going to get it down the field. You see, God will spend his saints to get that glory. He spent his son to get that glory. Will he not spend us? We, when we sign up for Christianity, get into that end zone, we say, by body, by blood, whatever it takes, you win, God. You will get your ends. You can spend me however you want to do it. That's what communion is. It's an exchange of body, if you want to say it that way. We take his body, his blood, and we give him ours. We say, you can spend it any way you want. We've entered into intimate communion covenant bond with the king of the universe. To heed the Holy Spirit without hesitation. So, Eric, uh, do you follow the Holy Spirit perfectly? No. Do you want to? Yes. This is my desire. You could be a great quarterback in the NFL. You could come up to him and say, so, are you perfect? No. Do you want to be? You better believe it, I do. In other words, Christianity is the same way. We're being sanctified. God still desires to use us and loves us the whole while we're imperfect. But he desires to perfect us. So if you find hesitation in you, it shouldn't shock you. It's just in all of us. However, don't accept it. Don't just coddle it and pet it and say, oh, well, everyone has this. Kick it out. Repent of it. I do not want to hesitate, Lord. But if you find that you do, repent of it. And immediately say, okay, God, sorry I hesitated. I'm back in. I want what you have for me. To be bent in whatever direction the Holy Spirit determines best. To speak when the Holy Spirit moves me to speak. To be silent when the Holy Spirit requests me to stay silent. To confess what the Holy Spirit convicts me of. To do what the Holy Spirit commands me to do. To live on bread, which is purpose, and water by the power of the Holy Spirit. Bread is purpose, and I'll explain that in just a a second. And water, in Scripture, is the Holy Spirit. How do we live? Well, we live on purpose. We live for the glory of Jesus Christ. How? Uh, Well, by the Holy Spirit's power. This is how we live. We live on bread and water. We live for the glory of Jesus Christ by the power of the indwelling Holy Spirit. This is how a life is revived. You allow God to cultivate, to turn up the soil. You allow him to convict you. You get into position. What's the next thing he shows you? Uh, You're standing in the way. 
Well, God, I want you to flow through me. I know, I do too. I long for that too, Eric, but I need you to move out of the way. Right now, it's still about you. Would you allow your life to be about me? And the moment you do that, you become a channel. I can flow through that. So step three. Now, I'm giving a new name to this. This is living on bread and water, but I'm going to give you a name that maybe will help clarify what I'm saying. The mastery of the Holy Spirit. I'm not saying the influence of the Holy Spirit. I'm calling it the mastery of the Holy Spirit. Who owns you? The Holy Spirit does. Who directs you? The Holy Spirit does. Who's defining what you do today? The Holy Spirit does. Uh Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, Do we really want to be revived? The farmer hears what he needs to do. And he could look back at God and say, but God, that's like the sweat of my brow. That would be hard work. I'd have to get up early every morning. You know how many weeds could fill an entire field? Mm Mm-hmm. Do you want that crop or not? Well, yeah, but could you make it easy? Do you want life or not? Do you want the Christian life? Do you want to get into that end zone? There's only one way in. That's living on purpose for the glory of God to get into that end zone, to reveal his nature, his character to this world around by the indwelling power and mastery of the Holy Spirit. You are no longer your own. You are bought with a price. But why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? That should convict us all. Now, Jesus, in this context, is just about to describe two different characters. One who builds upon rock and one who builds upon sand. And he makes it very clear. If you build the way I have commanded you to build, winds and rains can beat against you and you will stand. But if you do not do what I say... You can say, Lord, Lord, sing songs and dance around, have streamers all day long. But if you don't humble yourself and agree with what I say and do it, it's empty words. God is interested in a doing church. We know what we ought to do. Let's do it. We want reviving, or do we? If we really want it, we will get it. If a farmer wants a crop, he will get it. If we have a singular focus and we're willing to do what it takes, we're willing to count the cost and start building in that direction, we will, in fact, find what we're after. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? I was thinking about that for most of the week, that exact line. Am I doing the things that you say? In, in Luke 6, you just read Luke 6 and think of the context of what he's saying. Now, this is the type of stuff like if someone you know, strikes you on one cheek, you turn to them the other also. Now, if someone asks for your cloak, you give them your tunic as well. It's like, wow, well, we're Americans. We have rights. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things which I say? Has God not made it clear how to farm your soil? Has he not made it clear how his kingdom works? I don't care how America works. All that really matters to us is how the kingdom of heaven works. And if he's going to ask us to do something, I say we bend our knee. And we say, you are in command of this life. It's not me that is in control. I want to serve God. That's where the Holy Spirit comes in. He won't let us get away with schlocky Christianity. If you want to be mastered, he'll master you. And he will say, did not you say, Lord, Lord? Then why aren't you doing it? You're right. I want to say, Lord, Lord, and do it. I want to be as the wise man who builds his life upon that which you have said. And when the winds and the rains beat against this life, it will stand in the day of testing. This is something that uh, Sandy sent to me. Uh, on Tuesday night, I believe it was, right after our prayer time, which was very precious to me, by the way, uh, Tuesday night's prayer time. And she was just so overwhelmed by how much it fit with what God was doing in our midst. And I was, she didn't know what I was even leaning towards for this week. And so just think about this. Now, in T. Austin Sparks' writing, he uses the word anointing, Now, because of the baggage that comes with that particular word in our modern day, 
I'm not saying it's a bad word. I've taught on it many times, but I have to go through the word and clarify what I don't mean by it. So because of that, I have taken out the word anointing and placed in it what it means. It still means this, and that's indwelling. It is the application of the Spirit of God to our life. When the Holy Spirit truly masters us, you could call that anoints us. Jesus was the anointed one. That's what Christos means. Christ, that means the anointed one. What was he? He was mastered by the Holy Spirit. He did nothing of his own accord. What the Father wanted to speak, he spoke. What the Father wanted him to do, he did. That's the anointing. That is what Christ had. That is what he demonstrated. Do you want that? Do you want to be anointed? And so I'm using the word indwelled because it will make more sense, I believe, to our minds. But that means the Holy Spirit moving in and calling this his home. If you really want that, let's read. What is the meaning of the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? It is nothing less and nothing other than the Holy Spirit taking his place as Lord. The indwelling carries with it the absolute lordship of the Holy Spirit. The Spirit is Lord. That means that all other lordships have been deposed and set aside. The lordship of our own lives, the lordship of our own minds, our own wills, our own desires, the lordship of others. The lordship of every interest and every influence is regarded as having given place to the undivided and unreserved lordship of the Holy Spirit. And the indwelling can never be known or enjoyed unless that has taken place. Do you ask for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Uh, sort of what we're talking about today. Do we ask for that? Do we want that? Some of you want the influence of the Holy Spirit. You want the blessings of the Holy Spirit. You want God's favor upon your life. Do you ask for the indwelling of the Holy Spirit? Why do you ask for it? Is the indwelling something that you crave? To what end? What end zone are you after? That you may be used to... I can easily get convicted in this next list here. Why do I desire the Holy Spirit? God, give more power to my ministry. Think about this. To what end? That you may be used? Now we have to admit it. Guilty is charged. Every single one of us. What do we want the Holy Spirit for? That my life would mean something. That it would make an impact in this world. Is that bad? No. But is that the end zone? That's what's challenging to every one of us. The end zone is that he is seen. What if that means you're in shackles in a prison cell and suffer? Well, God, I want the Holy Spirit, but not, don't lead me that way with it. What, to what end? That you may be used, may have power, may have influence, may be able to do a lot of wonderful things. The first and preeminent thing the indwelling means is that we can do nothing but what the indwelling teaches and leads to do. The indwelling takes everything out of our hands. The indwelling takes charge of the reputation. The indwelling takes charge of the very purpose of God. The indwelling takes complete control of everything and all is from that moment in the hands of the Holy Spirit. And we must remember that if we are going to learn Christ, that learning Christ is by the Holy Spirit's dealing with us. And that means that we have to go exactly the same way as Christ went in principle and in law. Perhaps that is a little different idea of the indwelling from what you have had. Oh, to be indwelled by the Holy Spirit. What wonders will follow. How wonderful life will be. The first and the abiding thing about this indwelling is that we are imprisoned into the lordship of the Spirit of God so that there can be nothing if he does not do it. Nothing. It's okay to gulp. This is a coming to the end of us. We often try and do church out of our own substance. The whole while talking about Jesus. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying that it's all that. I'm saying that we oftentimes have mixtures, sort of like 80% Jesus, 20% us. That's not bad, is it? I mean, it's better than the church down the road. And yet, what is the Christian life? 100% Jesus, and we're carried along by that wind. It scares me, to be honest. I remember A.W. Tozier asking me that very question. He's, he was dead. It was through a book. But A.W. Tozier was asking me that very question. Eric, how much do you want God? Are you willing to give up everything, all the controls of your life to have that baptism of the Holy Spirit, to have what you know you were created to have? And that is to be used of God, to be built by God, to be empowered by God, to deliver the goods of God to this world. 
Are you willing to give up your life in order to gain it? And I spent every morning on my face for months. And the first thing I was praying for is that God would change my heart towards that dying. Because I recognized I was afraid. I was afraid to let God have me. Why? It doesn't make any sense. He created me. He loves me. Why? That's what I was created for. Why would I hesitate? And yet I found a hesitation inside of me. Why would I hesitate? Why would you hesitate? Well, you see, we want to be in control. And we think that if we're in control, we can bring about our ends, ends that please us. Are we willing to relinquish that control? And trust that God can bring about the ends that are so far beyond anything we could ask or imagine if we would simply trust him. Getting lost in a higher purpose. For many of us, we have a purpose, and it's good. It's better than the guy down the road and his purpose. However, is it the Holy Spirit's purpose, which is to reveal and to glorify Jesus Christ in this earth? Do we have the same purpose as the Holy Spirit? I want us to get lost in a higher purpose. Oswald Chambers. I have to learn that the aim in life is God's, not mine. God is using me from his great personal standpoint, and all he asks of me is that I trust him and never say, Lord, this gives me such heartache. To talk in that way makes me a clog. (laughs) When I stop telling God what I want, He can catch me up for what he wants without let or hindrance. He can crumple me up or exalt me. He can do anything he chooses. He simply asks me to have implicit faith in himself and in his goodness. Do you need me to read that again? I'm not sure if it sank in. He can crumple me up or exalt me. He can do anything he chooses. As a church... As a nation, he can crumple us up, he can exalt us. He can use us how he sees fit. Are we willing to let him do it? If we want that sort of life, that sort of revival, it might not look like any other revival that's ever taken place. Avi had a dream last night that people, in, she said, in our modern day, like nowadays, people were hanging on crosses and even little kids were. I go, was it a sad dream? She goes, yeah, because people were dying. I go, well, those people are Christians. You know what's going to happen next? They go to heaven. Go, That's right. See, we have nothing to fear as Christians. But guess what? What if that were true? I've often said, if revival comes to the church, one of two things is going to happen. Either the world goes along with the revival and this world is wholly changed because the church is now alive. Or they erect crosses for us afresh and we die on them. Either way, God gets his due. Are we willing to say yes to God no matter if he crumples us up or exalts us? He does the choosing. He does the leading. It tests your motive right there. Though he slay me, yet will I trust him. The famous statement of the grave, you can't enunciate it better than that. It doesn't matter what happens to this body. I trust my God. Where he leads me, he will get glory. Whatever that means to me. Living on the bread, a.k.a. living on purpose. Exodus 25, and thou shalt set upon the table showbread before me always. The word showbread is a very odd word. It's called the bread of the face or the bread that reveals. What? Bread that reveals? Why is that in the tabernacle? Why do we have a bread that's called the bread of the reveal? The bread that shows. Shows what? Bread? No, the bread that is going to come down from heaven, it's going to show you the Father. You guys know who that bread is, don't you? His name is Jesus. He is the showbread. In the, oh, this is called the bread of the face, the bread through which God is seen, the bread through which man attains the sight of God, the bread through which man gains access to the life and nourishment of God. Can you think of who that is? That's Jesus. He's the bread of the face. You've seen me, you've seen the Father. So in the Greek... We translate this word for showbread and we stick it in the New Testament. It's sort of like, how do you define that? This is the word that was chosen, prothesis. It translates as showbread. That which is predetermined to be set forth and show. And then it also means a purpose. The showbread is 
the purpose. The bread of purpose. Isn't that strange? Well, what is, what is Jesus' purpose? To reveal the Father. What is our purpose? To reveal Jesus. I know Jesus is the showbread, but did you know that we as the church are called to be showbread? How do we become showbread? Well, by feasting on the bread. God's showbread, his purpose. According to the eternal purpose, or showbread, you know, that word purpose is actually showbread. According to the eternal showbread, which he purposed or set forth and revealed in Christ Jesus, our Lord. The showbread of God, the church. You see, God desires us to fulfill a purpose. He created us for a purpose. Who is that purpose? Well, he's the bread that came down from heaven. He actually, Jesus himself makes it very clear, I am that bread. You see, he is that purpose. That purpose, that, that bread that reveals the face, that bread that is willing to be broken, that this world would see what otherwise would be invisible. That bread that is willing to be broken. I'm emphasizing this just in case you're thinking he just said that. That bread that is willing to be broken, that this world would see what otherwise would be invisible. Uh, that's us. We're the body of Christ. We are that bread. We are that body that is willing to be broken. That this world would see what otherwise would be invisible. Clearly, says Paul, you are an epistle of Christ ministered by us, written not with ink, but by the spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of flesh, that is, of the heart. You are this entire Bible revealed. That's what we're intended to be, to showcase what Jesus Christ demonstrated. That same love, that same mercy, that same grace, that same courage, that same boldness, that same purpose. You see, God is extending his love and his mercy to this world by giving this world the church. He has chosen us as a vehicle. However, we are a pretty pathetic vehicle if we try and do it without the water. You try and be the showbread without the water and your mouth will get all gummy. I just made that up as we went along. But it was, it was a good thought. If you have a whole bunch of bread and no water, it doesn't taste good after a while. It starts to get gummy. That's about right. If we don't have the living water, we're sunk. Now listen to Paul in Ephesians. Now, that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places according to the eternal showbread, the eternal purpose, which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Manifold wisdom of God made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places. This is our job. How are you going to pull that off? How do we as the church fulfill our role? Well, we can't do it in this strength. We have another strength that has been given us. Living on the bread and living water. On the last day, that great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the Spirit, whom those believing in him would receive, for the Holy Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. Praise God that is past tense. He has been glorified, and the Holy Spirit has been given. And as a result, those that believe are meant to be houses of this very Holy Spirit, and out of us will flow that ministry, that same purpose, that same grace that flowed out of Jesus Christ. You see, living on bread and water is merely a creative way of saying we live on purpose. And that purpose to fulfill the glory that we've been assigned to reveal to the heavenly realms that which otherwise would be invisible, the glory of God, the glory very specifically of one known as Jesus Christ. And when we reveal Jesus Christ, the world sees the Father. So the way the Father is known is that we exalt Jesus Christ in our midst. We bend our knee. We declare on our tongues that he is Lord to the glory of the Father. 
And who helps us do it? The Holy Spirit. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit all working in tandem to bring about the purpose. The purpose for why we all were created. It was not to just enjoy our life in America, to twiddle our thumbs and to see every day how we can find pleasure in this world. It was to lay down our right to seek pleasure, to give it up to him and to say, my life is about one singular thing and objective, and that is the glory of Jesus Christ. You are not going to find that glory if you try and mix in the things of this world. The extreme nature of what I'm telling you goes far beyond probably even what I can comprehend. Because to be honest, I have not grown up around a Christianity that takes God at his word. That actually does the very things that scripture says. I even have little fuzzy edges that say, well, I mean, you don't probably have to do that. I was just slapped on the cheek. Do I really have to turn the other cheek? There's a pattern. It's sort of like the farmer saying, come on, I tilled the soil. Do I really need to plant a seed? You see, yes is the answer. What God has asked of us, we do. May we not say, Lord, Lord, and not do it. But may we heed the word of Scripture afresh as a generation and say, our God has asked us, and we are his bond slaves. And whatever he asks of his slaves, we say, yes, Lord. Even before he asks it, we have a predecided, yes, Lord. Father, don't let us escape from your Holy Spirit's conviction. Lord, you stand at the door and knock. And that is because you desire to come in. And you are our Lord and Master. And I pray that you would prove to be the Lord and Master of our bodies, our thought lives, our appetites, our sexuality, our time, our affections, our desires, our ambitions, our gifts and abilities, every aspect of who we are, Lord Jesus. May you master it. And may you lead it all towards the same singular purpose. May we not try and devise a purpose that is contrary to what you have already made clear in, in Jesus Christ, the showbread. We are called to be showbread. Simply put, and there's only one way to do it, and that's by the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, for any of us that have never allowed you in at that level, I pray that you would come. And I pray that you would peel away the grip that we have on the doorknob. And may we deliberately choose to unlock and allow, to yield, to let, to let our God be God in our lives. Lord, the extreme nature of what this message implicates and implies, I don't think any of us in this room truly understand what it means to be ruled by the Holy Spirit. But Lord, we're willing to learn because we cannot do this on our own. Apart from you, we can do nothing. And unless the Lord builds the house, we labor in vain. So Lord, build this house. Lord, we ask for your grace and your mercy to be expressed in this nation. We are at a tipping point. It's unlike anything I've ever seen in my history. We have lost you. We have turned our back on you. And we are deserving of judgment. But Lord, I, I ask for your mercy and for space for repentance. I know we don't deserve it and I'm asking you for something that you are not obligated to give. But Lord Jesus, you are a merciful God and I know mercy triumphs over judgment. If Disaster is what is necessary to awaken us as a church. If you need to crumple us up so that your glory would be seen, I say, yes, Lord. But Lord, we first ask that you would revive your church and that you would revive a dead people. 
that you would rattle bones together. You would put skin upon those bones and breathe into it and lift up and raise up a mighty army. Lord, we don't have much time before it's too late. So I ask that you would do it now. And I pray that every single one of us would position ourselves as Elijah did on Mount Carmel. And we would take it seriously. That we would step away from diversions and deliberately choose to say, Lord, forgive us for being distractible. We want to be owned and operated by you. We trust you, Lord. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Looney, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.